0: The best version of the world starts with the best version of you.
1: Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself each episode you will hear from some of the most amazing talented and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others together we're going to make the world a better place are you ready because it's time for your daily helping thanks for tuning into this episode of the daily helping podcast I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have a phenomenal guest to share with you today. Her name is Shelly Tagelsky and she's the author of Sit Down to Rise Up and the founder of the global grassroots mutual aid organization, pandemic of love. Her work has been featured on over 100 media outlets, including CNN Heroes, the Tamron Hall Show, the Kelly Clarkson Show, CBS This Morning, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. A trauma mindfulness teacher and a Garrison Institute Fellow, she has been called one of the 12 most powerful women of the mindfulness movement by mindful.org, and she teaches self-care and resilience at organizations around the world. Shelley, this is going to be awesome. Welcome to the Daily Helping. It is great to have you here with us today.
0: Thanks so much, Dr. Richard. I really appreciate being here.
1: Oh, this is going to be this is going to be great because there's so many different ways we could go. There's so much we can talk about, and it's so timely. And I think that's what's really important. But I, before we even get into what you're doing, I'd like to go back in time. Let's get in our time machine. Sure. <laughs> Let's go back. Take us through what inspired you to get on the path that you're on today.
0: Well, I mean, my path's been like a two-tiered path, right? My interest in in mindfulness in general, or in meditation really stemmed out of the fact that I grew up as uh, an Orthodox Jew. Uh, and had a very rigid contemplative practice that was sort of laid out for me. You know, this is how many times a day you have to pray. This is what you have to say. This is the rote nature of how you do things. And um, when I was in graduate school, I happened upon during an internship while I was uh, working for a UN agency in Geneva, met a couple that uh, was Japanese, they were Zen Buddhists. And every morning when I would get up to pray, they would be meditating. And uh, I'm sure you can envision the setting. Like if you're imagining Geneva, looking over the lake with the mountains, that was exactly how it was. (laughs) I can't even script it any better than that. And I thought, wow, you know, gosh, they seem so relaxed and so present. And, and just there was like this this quality of their uh, their presence when they would, you know, finish their meditation practice, which was not the same quality that I was feeling after I finished my morning prayers. Um, and so that planted a seed in me. I started to meditate, and I kept it as a very personal practice for many years. Even after I graduated grad school and I sort of started climbing up the ranks. Uh, And the rungs uh, in the corporate world to eventually become the president of a firm with twenty four hundred employees and fourteen markets. And um, the second part of my 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 journey really sort of started when I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition. I was diagnosed with uh, uveitis, and I woke up one morning. I was in the middle of a divorce. I had a at the time my son was two years old, and I woke up and I couldn't see anything. I was literally blind, and I didn't know if I would ever regain my vision. I didn't know why this was happening, uh, and I didn't know if it was like also sort of a side effect of something else that I would be diagnosed with, right? So, so these kind of two, you know, the seed that was planted in me in graduate school, the fact that I already had this contemplative practice habit. From a very young age, that was ingrained in me. And the fact that I, I think, was given this gift of darkness. That's what I call it this gift of darkness. I was able to understand that I needed to start to take the reins and the control back in my life uh, and really start to develop a rigid self care plan for myself a self care plan that would have to be supported by a community, by a community of care. And this is sort of how I got started on this journey of, of really trying to understand how I define the self, which I define it very differently than what I would say most people would define it as, you know, like people think of the self as the I or the me or kind of this body that we're, uh, that we're inhabiting temporarily on this, on this earth. But really the self, it, it, you know, just expands far beyond this physical body. It really has a lot to do with every interaction that we get involved with on a daily basis, every word we say, every action, uh, every reaction, past and present, and certainly leading into the future. And so when I sort of started to, you know, just put all these puzzle pieces together, and that's really what they were, I recognized that the way that I am conducting and dedicated to the inner work has a lot to do with the way I show up in the outer world.
1: There's just a little bit to unpack in all of that. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things you struck me that was very curious to me is that you'd sit in in Geneva, you're doing your daily prayer as part of the regimen of being an Orthodox Jew. And then, you know, these Japanese individuals were doing their Zen practice. And you said that it didn't feel the same, that there was a kind of a tangible difference between your prayer and how you felt and how it appeared they felt. And then you got into meditation yourself. So I'm curious, yeah, because a lot of the research has shown that prayer and meditation kind of hit the same part of the brain. For a lot of people, they're synonymous. Mm. What were those qualitative differences for you?
0: Well, so I think for me, you know, if if we're just talking about prayer where we sit down and we're speaking to God and it's unscripted, then I agree with you. The way that, you know, it doesn't matter how we define God or source or, you know, what have you, the power, the powers that be. But if we're unscripted, then I believe that, yes, the, the qualities uh, and the effects could be the same. But for me, you know, I was basically saying the same exact prayer every single day since I was a really, really young girl. And so it got to the point where I could like breeze through it. You know, I could, I could speak it and be thinking about what I'm going to eat for breakfast. What am I going to wear that day? You know, who am I going to meet for lunch? What's going to happen at work? And, and so my mind was not present in Hebrew. There's a word, uh, Kavana or pronounced actually that's, that's what the Hebrew uh accent to it but it's kavana and kavana means like meaning right it means like the intent and the intention behind the prayer and the reality is is that for me for a very long time i was praying without kavana without intention without like this fervent really you know i'm here i'm present and these words are so meaningful to me they they really just became these rote words and I noticed that I noticed that the quality of of my intention and the way that it felt like it used to fill me up, it wasn't doing it for me anymore, you know. And so when I when I first found myself in a meditation class with Sharon Salzberg at the Tibet at Tibet House in uh, in New York City and the Lower East Side or in the Chelsea area, I um. I practiced metta bhavna, which is loving-kindness meditation for the first time. This was in the late 90s, still in graduate school, and something shifted. Something shifted in me where I felt like, wait a minute, I don't even have to say any words. I mean, like, I don't have to say them out loud, and they they could be any words that I choose, and I can come from. Of completely different place that isn't necessarily centered in my brain, but centered in my heart and something just kind of shifted for me. And I realized that I could with intention and, uh, you know, with just, um, a lot of presence, I could still speak to, uh, how I define God to be, uh, in a very different way.
1: So it really it was the dogmatic aspects of it that made it yes. different from you. When when you did that, was it was it different when you started making that transition and kind of redefining what God meant to you? Yeah. Was that conflictual? Did did your family yeah. have issues with it? Like what kind of what was the fallout from that?
0: I mean, yeah, obviously, you know, going from wearing skirts only to like eventually wearing pants and you know, I was, but I was always one of those kids who or you know, certainly women who wasn't really a rule real follower. Um, I always liked to kind of explore outside of the lines and, uh, it did get me in trouble quite often. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it was, there were, there were within my, you know, peer group, there were fallouts. I certainly lost a lot of a lot of friends, uh, you know, got disinvited from from a lot of um, Shabbat dinners and 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 events and 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 so on. But um, and even within my own family. However, you know, at the end of the day, it all boils down to to love. And I always tell people, like, as long as you leave the door open, if you leave the door open, even ajar, just a little bit. Uh, then there's a, always a distinct possibility that um, you know whoever you're in conflict with or thinks of you as the other or that you've gone off the deep end or what have you um, can make their way back.
1: I love that. I the I, I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of beautiful metaphors and analogies as we continue <laughs> to roll through our time together, uh, Shelley. I'm curious as well. Like I, I, I wrote down gift of darkness. And I want to revisit that a little bit because, you know, as you're hearing this, you're thinking, okay, here's an ophthalmological neuro-, neuro condition that all of a sudden you're blind, and and anybody who's sitting there listening to this can think about what their lives would be like during that time. How critical was this meditative practice during that time? Do you think it it expedited your healing? And and where are you? I mean, I. I it seems like you can see now. <laughs> so that, yeah. that, that was, uh, there's obviously been some, some recovery there to some degree. talk to us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so the gift of darkness really comes from a Mary Oliver poem, right? She writes, and I'm kind of loosely quoting her at this point, but it's, uh, someone once gave me a box of darkness and it took me a while to realize that it too was a gift. And the name of the poem is The Uses of Sorrow. And I love that poem so much because truly I feel that sometimes when we're handed really bad news or we're we're, you know, just in a point at a point of despair or a point where we feel like, gosh, I'm at the lowest point. There's no way back, right? Or Could it couldn't get any worse than this there, there's a moment there where we have this opportunity to sort of really like rise from the ashes. And we can, we can make a distinct choice about if we want to get bitter or we want to get better. And so I made the choice because fortunately I had a two-year-old son and I tell him all the time, you know, now he's a 19 year old, but I, I always tell him like, you saved me. And he's like, what does that even mean? You know? And I think that now that he's older uh, certainly as he reads the book, he'll uh, he'll understand a little bit more. But I, I felt like, wow, I have this little human that I have to kind of survive for. You have this survival instinct. And I don't want to be a bitter person because that is something that I don't want to pass on to him. So I'm going to get better. And the way I'm going to get better is I'm going to um, learn to tend to myself and understand that the, that the condition that I have flares up, uh, when I am under stress. And so if I can control all these different stressors in my life, right. And really change my life, which I did, by the way, it was not just about like, Oh, she only started meditating. No, like I changed my diet. I'm gluten-free and I'm vegan. And I, you know, um, changed careers and like, uh, just a slew of things had to happen in my life, really in, to to rebuild again uh, and to tend to myself and to put on that proverbial oxygen mask first so that I could be the best mother I could be, uh, first and foremost to my son, and then eventually you know be a be a great wife to to my to my now husband who I've been with for over fifteen years, uh, and so on. and so, the inner work was critical the inner work was critical for me because i had to be able to excavate and understand the trigger points what really was activating me and where it was activating me in my body and i was the type of person that was always focused on my entire life like being busy you know filling the voids if you will with Um, anything but silence with people, with, you know, activities, with volunteering for things um, rather than just sitting with myself and really sort of tending to understanding what it is that makes me tick and why I am so averse to certain things and why I respond to certain things a certain way and why I compartmentalize things and kind of say, I don't want to deal with this. I'm just going to put it on the back burner. And then eventually the back burner catches on like a wildfire and like the whole house burns down, you know, and that was really the point where I was. Uh, and and really, I think the impetus of all that was the fact that I was going through a really, you know, difficult divorce and, and I felt like a failure on many levels, you know, not just because of the divorce, because of just, uh, you know, everything that was going on in my life at the time, which I think, Triggered then this uh, autoimmune response, right? So where I am today is that I've been dealing with this since I was twenty seven years old I'm forty four now. I was originally told by the first ophthalmologist to diagnose me when I was twenty seven that I would be most likely blind by the time I was forty. And when somebody gives you that type of diagnosis, you know it they sort of you know what they do they flip like that hour that sand glass. <laughs> the hourglass and, and you're like, oh crap, like I only have 13 more years to do all these things that I wanted to do and go all these places that I wanted to see and kind of take these snapshots of things that are important to me, right? Really like study people's faces that I love and, 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 and watch as many sunsets and sunrises as I can. And so I started to really live my life like in a in a fully catastrophic way but a beautiful way of just kind of showing up for as many things as possible but making sure that I was as present as possible for those moments because I in my mind told myself I you know eventually this is going to go away and so I need to like create this um you know this sort of archive of material that I can that I can go back to if if the darkness comes again and 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 doesn't go away. So I I have been under treatment for the last, you know, close to 20 years. And I um, get uh, injections in my eyes directly into my eyeballs of prednisone every, you know, three, four or five months. And I've had several surgeries uh, in the back of my eye to help with the leakage and the capillaries. So i've 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 undergone you know constant treatment for the last uh several you know two decades and you know and and it's going to continue like there's no known cure at this point for it right um i last year or no sorry it was two years ago two years ago this month i was i woke up one morning and i had a i guess i'll call it a floater because I think it'll be more understandable to the listeners this way. But I had a floater that sort of lodged itself really in the line of my vision. And so that has caused vision impairment for me in my left eye. Uh, and it's really amazing how the human brain works because while it kind of screwed up my equilibrium for a little bit and definitely made me concerned about things like driving for a little bit as well, I you know, notice that within a few months, like my right eye sort of took over and the aperture sort of expanded on my right eye. So I, it hasn't stopped me from doing all the things that I love. You know, I still got back on a, on a skateboard and on a snowboard and I still, I still drive. So everybody, this is a call for you to stay off the roads when I'm driving <laughs> in, your, in your city. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable, you know, how we can choose how we want to frame things in that bitter or better way.
1: Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. You know, this is the perfect example of East meets, meets West because you're describing the prednisone injections and the surgical intervention, yet, from a mind, body, soul kind of bringing it all together, you've mm-hmm. done it. Like you have taken control, the inner voice. You know, this story really resonates with me. You know, 20 years ago when I broke my back in a car accident and was told all these things I can't do. Wow! I, I chose not to accept that, and right. now I do. I still do everything I always wanted to do, and it's the same thing. You know, I had a choice to become very angry at God, at the world, for how could how could this have happened to me? Uh, right. So, thank you for sharing that, and I and I'm very glad that uh, I had circled gift of darkness because I think we we really touched on some wonderful things, and I I also I would be remiss if we didn't talk about your book, and I know this is a big segue, but I wanna give you time to talk about your book and your movement and all that you're doing because it's so important. So let's talk a little bit about Sit Down to Rise Up and how radical self-care can change the world. So the first question I have was, was it the pandemic that made you decide to write this? What, What was the thing that made you decide to do this? So
0: I actually sold the book proposal before the pandemic okay. ever happened. I sold it in at the end of 2019. And in March of uh, 2020, I was actually in Israel with a co-teacher that I teach with often, David G, who uh, is also Jewish, by the way, uh, or Jubu or Buju. And we were teaching in the Holy Land. We basically teach a re- mindfulness retreat there 10 days Called Holy Shift. <laughs> uh, and it's uh, mindfulness at the intersection of faith. And it's it's this like contempt, you know, we study all the con- different contemplative practices in, in Islam, in Judaism, in Christianity, and how, you know, just this through line of meditation intersects uh, between all of them as we sort of travel through uh, all of these ancient uh, historic parts of, of, of the country. And so, you know, I, I resolved that when I would, was coming back, I would sit down and write this book. And the book was originally just supposed to be about self-care and really the connection between the me or the inner work and the we, which is the community. Right. And what happened was, is that once the pandemic hit, and once I sort of accidentally started this movement pandemic of love, which really was like, an accident, it wasn't, I never set out to create like this global movement. I realized that there's really a third part of this book and that's the journey of us, which is movements, how to create movements. And so the through line of the book, the book is divided into three sections, the me, which is the inner journey, the we, which is the communal journey, and then the us, which is movements, when many communities get together and decide to kind of row in the same direction. Uh, and to make changes uh, in society and in the way that we want to uh, see the world.
1: So let's go through a little bit of it. And because it, I think this is so interestingly framed so the, the me, the we, the us. And so let's talk about the me a little bit. And we've been there a bit, you define self earlier, but take us through that first section of some of the things that When the readers get their hands on this book, they're going to gain out of this.
0: Yeah. So that first section, first and foremost, the first chapter talks about agency. And it talks about how agency means that people recognize how their choices are born from our God-given free will. Let's talk about that, right? God-given free will will affect other people. And it means that we have this ability to be reflective and have awareness and be introspective about our actions. So we talk about agency and how we're all, we're all gifted with this agency, but that we don't all have a sense of this agency. And so how can we gain a sense of the agency? And then it takes us through the understanding of a formalization of self-care, uh, how we can create self-care plans And how we can really begin to understand what needs to be on the self-care plan, right? Uh, What needs to be enumerated and formalized and written down and why that needs to happen. And I talk a lot about also, you know, journaling and prompting. And I provide prompts to the readers uh, that helped me. Uh, really start to, as I said, excavate and uncover a lot of these habits that I had formed and sometimes subconsciously formed over many years. I am somebody that suffers intensely from imposter syndrome. and I suffer intensely from issues of like self-worth and being enough and you know validation. And so we talk a lot about all of those sort of obstacles in the first section. And then I provide the reader with tools to get them to formalize a plan so that they can start to work their way through the inner journey.
1: I, I'm writing things down, I'm smiling, I'm loving <laughs> this. So I know you've got a lot of tools. Give us a few though do's and don'ts in creating one self-care plan if you could.
0: Sure, so, you know, this, a self-care plan basically is, again, it's a piece of paper or, you know, it could be a to-do list. It could be a spreadsheet. It really depends on the type of person you are and the way that your brain works. So I always tell people, Google self-care plan template, and you'll be shocked to see how many different versions of templates you can actually download. And then sit down and define for yourself. All in the segments, in the sections that the self-care plan template, you know, prompts you to. And they usually have different sections like physical, spiritual, financial, you know, they very neatly boxed kind of categories and areas that sometimes intersect with each other. But the idea here is that the simple act of writing something down really makes it a lot more tangible. It causes you to sit down and like just Put it in a container that is sort of like, you know, that that uh, fire extinguisher in in a glass box that says "Break in case of emergency." Because what happens is is that when we're at a point of stress, when we're at a point of, you know, just duress, and or we're tired or we're burnt out, and we're, you know, or we're teetering on burnout. We usually do what? We make bad decisions regarding our self-care. We, we, we kind of grab the vices or the things that we think are going to make us feel better that most likely are not always the best thing for us, whether it's like a glass of wine or, you know, if it's uh, that that chocolate cheesecake <laughs> or whatever we think is going to sort of fill the void, but isn't really, you know, a long-term Long term fix. So, having that thing written down is really incredibly important. The other thing that I will say is that, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, just getting into a habit with meditation and really understanding that even those 10 to 15 minutes every morning, and I am a very big, I know you can meditate anytime, and it really, there's no right or wrong time, or but I just, I just based on informally, you know, kind of surveying and seeing what works for most of my students and other people that I've I've talked to is that when you can get into the habit of meditating first thing in the morning, that is your best bet before the day grabs a hold of you and, you know, has its own plans for you, right? You always have the best laid plans for the day. But at the end of the day, you're like, what just happened to my whole day? Right? And then Again, it's easy to just sit down and watch another episode of that of that series on Netflix versus, you know, putting aside that time that you promised yourself you would put aside for yourself because you're just exhausted. So you're like, oh, too tired to meditate, which is a paradox in itself. But but anyway, so the acronym that I borrow from my friend, actually, David G, uh, is RPM, which is funny. It stands for rise. P meditate. <laughs> that should be your morning routine. Rise, pee, meditate, and then coffee, of course. But, um, but really, if you can kind of get into this habit of sort of just getting out of bed, and you know, even if you want to crawl back into bed, if you're like a snoozer type person, um, and you are, you know, I think on my on my phone, I have an iPhone if you hit the snooze button it gives you 9 extra minutes i know this cuz i like to snooze and so it gives you 9 extra minutes so if you can just for one of those snooze sessions prop yourself up against your headboard and you know use that time to meditate before you even get out of bed you know things like that just like really tangible specific ideas that could be immediately incorporated into your life versus you know, these big lofty sort of changes that I feel are just not realistic for most of us that are living in the real world. You know, a lot of these self-help books, if you will, and I know that my book is sort of in that genre, but I've been told by people who have read it that it doesn't hit like most self-help books because And I think that's partly because I'm not saying that many people who write self-help books don't live in the real world, but I think it's because I've like lived in the real world, was a single mom, worked full time, like, you know, juggled so many different things that when somebody kind of tells me the five ways to be happier or the five ways to be, you know, calmer or to, to infuse something in my life. And these, those, each of those five things are completely unrealistic in terms of like, what I can actually fit into my life, then they've lost me. And so i I made a very, you know, real concerted effort to make sure that whatever tips and tools and and tangible things that I put in the book, that they're they're things that um, would have fit into my life even in at a time of my life that was, you know, just the craziest. and 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 you and had so much going on at the time.
1: This is awesome stuff. I yeah. want to give time to talk about we and us a little bit. So uh, we could talk for hours, but schedules <laughs> are gonna permit that. So let's talk a little bit about we. So we we talked about me, let's talk we.
0: So once you have a self-care plan, what happens is, is that um, as most of us tend to do, we kind of have it and we either stick it in the junk drawer or it winds up under a pile of papers uh, or, or mail or what have you. And it's like, you know, it's not readily available for us when we need it, right? Because what we forget to do is we forget to create the plan and then realistically look at it and say, these are the obstacles that will prevent me from doing these things. Sometimes it's time. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's, I don't have the skills to do this or the tools to do it, et cetera. But if we can sit down and identify the things that are keeping us from doing certain things, then that's kind of the next step to get into the we journey. And so I'll give you a tangible example. So when I was a single mom and um, one of the things on my uh, list was that I wanted to be able to go to yoga, a yoga class uh, at least twice a week. And that was virtually, honestly, it was impossible for me to do. I was, like I said, I was working full time. was a single mom. I was already waking up early to journal and to meditate in the morning before I would wake up my son and then have to drive into school and then have to commute and then have to commute back and make dinner. And by the time the end of the evening would come, and this was before Zoom, by the way, this was before you know Peloton and all of these other This, like I had a Nokia phone, so it wasn't like I could just go on my iPhone and there was an app for that because there was no app at that point. And I realized, you know, like I was really suffering at that time from time poverty. And that was one of my biggest obstacles, time poverty. And so I recognized that I really needed to ask for help. I needed to lean on community, on other individuals, other moms in this case, this is how I created my community of care. So I wound up inviting a group of uh, friends, acquaintances, some people that I knew very well, some people that I like knew in passing in the hallway at my son's school. And something beautiful really happened. You know, I found myself in a space of vulnerability the evening that everybody gathered at my house, and I I think everybody thought it was just sort of like a gathering to, you know, drink wine and and to, you know, just just relax, et cetera, kind of a mom's night out. And instead, I sort of hushed everybody up and I said, you know, I need need your help. I brought everybody here because I am asking for help. I created a self-care plan and I'm going through this really harrowing time. Uh, you know, I'm finalizing my divorce, I'm working full time, but I'm also going through a lot of medical issues right now. And I really need to be able to take care of myself so that I could get better. And I am suffering from from time poverty, I need help, I, I need the gift of time. And it was so interesting, because there were people who, like, immediately, Moved into that space of vulnerability and were like, well, I need this, you know, and I need that, and I can give you this. And so, you know, immediately I shared my self plan with my self care plan with everybody. And we proceeded to then have the group because we met again multiple times. Each one of the women in the group created their own formalized self care plans. And we started to share in an Excel spreadsheet. The things that we each needed, the obstacles that we needed removed in our lives, and it was so fascinating to see how this redistribution of wealth—and and I'm defining wealth loosely—I'm not defining it as money or socioeconomic anything, right? But wealth in terms of, of of time, for example, and each of us had like the different pieces of the puzzle that the other needed. So within a few weeks, I had two uh, different people picking up my son in the mornings and twice a week and taking him to school because it was on their way to wherever they were going. And suddenly I had, I found myself with like an extra hour of time, you know, in the morning to be able to tend to myself and to actually enact these things that were on my self-care plan. And I think that if I wouldn't have done that, if I wouldn't have leaned into developing a formalized community of care, and identifying those obstacles and sharing them with others and allowing them to share with me that I wouldn't have been able to actually enact these things uh, and create a safety net for myself. And this really this intricate web of of support and care. Uh, And that's really what the whole second section is about. It's about how can we create these communities of care that are there for us when we need them, that allow us to be there for other people when we need them, and I also get a lot into um, you know, the, the difficulty that we have, uh, especially culturally, of asking for help, you know, which is just so hard to do for some reason. And these communities of care make it a lot easier to do that because it it it's it presupposes and creates this environment where every single person in that community has something they need and has something that they can offer. And so that's the premise from from the beginning. And when you already know that, and you're like, Oh, well, I'm going to need something, but I can also offer something suddenly, you don't feel like you're just, you know, taking from the system, if you will, or asking for help, and that you owe somebody something, but rather that this is just this beautiful symbiotic ecosystem uh, that exists in nature everywhere, right? When you look at real ecosystems, whether it's the rainforest or a coral reef system, et cetera, this is what species do all the time. But for some reason, human beings like don't do it really well at all. We're, we're takers, you know, we're not, we're, we're really bad at, we're really bad at, at asking for help. And then we're really bad at sometimes even offering help. I've noticed.
1: This is true. This is, and your example was a beautiful illustration of that section of the book. Lastly, let's talk about us. Let's talk about us.
0: Yeah. So the us section is when I started to realize that, again, going through the pandemic, realizing just how throwing that proverbial pebble into the pond uh, in my own community created these ripple effects and how they were far reaching, and these sort of ripples started to converge and intersect with each other in communities, uh, we communities all around the, the world, not just you know, locally. I realized that when we're all rowing in the same direction, when we're all tending to the areas of the garden that we can reach, to borrow from a Buddhist proverb, that we can actually create these beautiful movements that can really start to lay down the foundations for the type of society that we wanna see. So in this section, I talk a lot about mutual aid, uh, which is what Pandemic of Love is. It's a mutual aid organization. And I talk about how a pillar of a community of care can evolve to become this kind of closed circuit community of care to evolve into becoming um, a safety net for the entire community at large as a mutual aid organization. So sort of widening that community of care out to again, presuppose that every single person in the community has something that they need, and every person has something that they can offer. and that if we can um, really create the systems to create the to to allow for that redistribution of wealth, that we can create equity and we can create a a society where everybody has enough. And there's a section in the book, uh, actually a chapter, a whole chapter, that uh, is titled After My Mantra. And my mantra is enough is a feast. Enough is a feast. And, And that really, to me, ultimately is the goal of creating these beautiful communities of care. It's, it's allowing for everybody, it, lifting everybody up, right? All the tide will lift all boats, lifting everybody up to the point where they have their basic needs met, where they have enough. And so that we could all move from a point of survival into a point of thriving.
1: So beautifully said. I, I wish we had more time to delve into that, but that was really nicely stated. Shelley, this has been... Awesome. And I know it's a great interview when I look at the clock and the time has flown by. <laughs> so uh, we are at the end. And as you know, I wrap up every episode by asking my guest a single question. And that is, what is your biggest helping? The one most important piece of information you'd like the audience to walk away with after hearing our conversation today?
0: I want the audience to remember that the best version of the world starts with the best version of you. And if you can extrapolate that out in a very formal and tangible way and commit yourself to putting together a self-care plan and sharing it with at least one other person, that that will begin the journey to the best version of yourself.
1: I love it. Tell us where people can learn more about you online, get their hands on your newest book.
0: Sure. So I am really active on Instagram and my handle is Mindful Skater Girl. Uh, because Tegelski is impossible to spell and pronounce, and because I like to skateboard. So it's Mindful Skater Girl. I'm very active. And I can also be found uh, at Shellytegelski.com. I can be found at PandemicOfLove.com. If you're somebody that needs help right now, uh, and there is a micro-community in your area, we can connect you with somebody who can give you help. And if you're somebody that wants to give help, if you have enough, or anything in excess of enough, and you would like to offer to pay somebody's, like you know, electric bill or fill somebody's fridge with food. There's an opportunity to do that at pandemicoflove.com. My book is available right now on all online um, at all online stores. You know, the big ones and the little ones, uh, local bookstores as well, and it's also on Audible and on Kindle.
1: Perfect. And for those of you. On the bike, we will have everything, Shelly togelski at the show notes at the dailyhelping.com. Shelly, this was awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. I loved our conversation.
0: Thanks so much, Dr. Richard. I really appreciate you. I appreciate this platform and this community.
1: Absolutely. And I appreciate each and every one of you as well who took time out of your busy day to listen to our chat. If you like what you heard, go give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review because that is what helps other people find this show. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.